On July 6, 2003, just after 1 p.m., 70-year-old Ernestine Harper was lying in bed taking a nap, having just returned home from church. Ernestine was an activist in the local area of Bakersfield, California, and had only been lying down for a little while when she was awoken by gunshots. Miss Harper pulled an antique revolver from her nightstand that she had purchased months before. She exited her room and was met in the hallway by a killer with a gun. She was able to pull the trigger six times, but because of the age and condition of the gun, all six were misfires, and Ernestine was gunned down. Two days later, the entire community of Bakersfield was alerted that a family of five had been murdered. Ernestine, her daughter, Joni, and Joni's three young children, ages four, two, and six weeks, were all found dead in their home. There has been a conviction in these murders that you will not believe. But now the man originally suspected of killing the family of five is suspected to be innocent? I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. During the early investigation, police initially thought Ernestine Harper was the intended target of this crime. She was a social activist in Bakersfield, with the best example of her work being during the Offord Rollins case in 1996. Offord Rollins was a 17-year-old black man who was accused of killing a classmate of his, 17-year-old Maria Rodriguez. She was brutally beaten and then shot to death and left in an isolated location on the side of a highway. Maria and Offord may have dated before her murder, and this is what landed Offord at the top of the suspect list, though he had an alibi for the time of the murder. Miss Harper was key in organizing marches and fundraising for Rollins and his defense. Though he was convicted in 1992, he was granted a retrial, and the jury deadlocked at six and six, and his case was considered a mistrial. Now this case is worth looking into and still unsolved, and we may cover it in more detail in the future, but for now, Let's get back to Miss Harper. Ernestine quickly became a widely known advocate for community issues. She was co-founder of the Extend a Hand for Justice organization and became highly respected as a spokesperson for the poor and disenfranchised. Ernestine was born March 27, 1933, in Corsicana, Texas. She was the third of six children, born of Arthur and Annie Mae Harper. At the age of 18, Ms. Harper confessed her belief in Christ and was baptized at the East Dallas Church of Christ. In 1961, she relocated to California, then moving to Bakersfield in 64. Ernestine was a deeply religious woman. She lived with her daughter, Joni Harper, and was helping Joni raise her three children, Marquez, Lindsay, and Marshall. As a family, they went to church every Sunday, just as they had on the day of their deaths. Ernestine wore her Sunday best that day, and was in good spirits. The family introduced six-week-old baby Marshall to the congregation for the first time that day. All of the victims had been shot execution style, and Joni had additional stab wounds covering her body. It also seemed that she had been shot in her sleep. A detective that was interviewed referenced a remote control to a TV that was balanced carefully on her leg, and if she had gotten up to fight or any type of self-defense, there's no way the remote would have been left there. So there was no evidence of forced entry, no one heard anything, and nothing was stolen, though the house had certainly been ransacked. So after initial investigations, Joni was eventually realized to be the intended target. So police naturally turned to Vincent Brothers, her estranged husband. The two were married at the time, but had been separated for a couple months. On July 8th, the day the crime was discovered, 
Brothers was in North Carolina visiting his mother. He claims to have driven directly from his brother's place in Ohio. This is where police contacted him to inform him of his family's deaths. Brothers at the time was a well-respected member of the community, serving as vice principal of a local elementary school. But the couple had been struggling for a while, especially after rumors of infidelity on his part. And during the investigation, more of Brothers' seedy side started to come to light. Things like marriage proposals, spousal abuse, misbehavior at school. Franklin School Principal Carla Tafoya testified that Brothers asked her to marry him the same year his first son was born, which was 1998. They dated on and off until she broke things off in 2002. But weeks before the family was killed, Tafoya and Brothers, they had sex one more time, according to her testimony. Brothers had rented an apartment on the south side of Bakersfield, California, and at some point, Joni had sought information on a restraining order on Vincent and filed for a divorce. So, if Brothers did it, how'd he get into the house without breaking in? Of course, she had changed the locks, and when he moved out, he didn't have a key. But there was an incident a few weeks before that would have granted him access to Joni's house keys. Her car had needed to be taken in and serviced, and Vincent volunteered to take it in for her. When she handed over the keys to her car, there was a key to her residence. So now he had an opportunity to make a copy. He is believed to have entered the house while the family was out attending church and removed the dowel rod from the sliding track of the back patio door. So he could then slip in later when they returned home. Then he hid in the bushes and waited. The only neighbor in the area who had view of this back patio door told police that they did indeed see brothers on the patio the weekend the murders occurred. So it seemed to police that they had their man. But there was a huge problem. Vincent's alibi for the time of the murders had checked out. He had a witness who placed him in Ohio visiting his brother. He also had receipts in an Ohio supermarket the day of the murder. So how could he have killed his family 2,200 miles away? Well, Vincent had rented a blue Dodge Neon which he had returned with 5,400 miles logged. They questioned all the people who had rented the vehicle, which was only four, the vehicle was practically new, and none of them have driven any further west than Michigan. So the police start doing the math in some serious CSI shit. The police and FBI get the car to investigate parts of the vehicle. It had been cleaned by the rental service, so they had to get creative. So officials had an entomologist examine the bugs in the radiator of the car. And she was able to identify several bugs that only reside on the West Coast. This entomologist was Dr. Lynn Kimsey. What a hero in this case. Now, there are over 200,000 different types of insects within the U.S., with California alone having about 100,000 of those varieties. Dr. Lynn Kimsey, the entomologist, identifies about 100 different types of bugs in the radiator of the Dodge Neon. The most significant find being a red-flanked grasshopper that is not native to Ohio. It really is only found in the areas of Oklahoma and northern Texas. So now, police have evidence that is starting to conflict with Brothers' alibi. Also, not too smart on his part, Brothers now stops working with police and stonewalls them. I don't know about anyone else, but if my entire family was murdered, I would go full Punisher. It's never a good sign when the survivors act like they don't want to find the answers. Seems like an obvious red flag to me. 
So Vincent is brought in for questioning and continues to claim that he was in Ohio visiting relatives at the time. He had credit card charges on Sunday, July 6th in Columbus, Ohio, again, 2,200 miles away from Bakersfield and his family. So they look into this activity a little more meticulously and they find that he did fly into Columbus on July 2nd. He then rented a blue Dodge Neon, which he claims to only have used within the Columbus area. But the rental records showed that brothers had returned the vehicle, like we said before, having 5,400 miles added to it, which would fall more in line with being driven 2,200 miles to Bakersfield, plus 2,200 back, plus the 1,000 miles that he traveled down to North Carolina to visit his mother. So now, investigators are sure they're on the right trail. So now the police go back to the stores that brothers had made purchases at, and they decide to check the security footage. And at a self-checkout camera, they are shocked to find it's not Vincent making these purchases. Instead, it's his brother on camera using Vincent's credit card, even signing his name on the receipts. So now brothers has no alibi and is suspect number one. They revisit the radiator and find three more insects that push the map even further west in areas including New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado. They find two bugs called the Peas Mid and the Light Giad. Both are called, quote, true bugs and were identified using the help of the Smithsonian which has one of the world's largest bug collections, by the way, as you could imagine. The peas mid are only found in Utah, Arizona, and the border of California. The other bug had a similar distribution, but was also found deeper into California. So now they have enough for an arrest. And Brothers is arrested in April of 2004 and charged with five counts of murder. He is found guilty on all accounts and is eligible for the death penalty. He was convicted by a judge for execution with time to be served in San Quentin, where he remains still. Prosecutors believe his motive was to have no child support and to start a new life with a woman who he had been seeing. On the day Brothers was sentenced to death, his only surviving child, Margaret Kern, disowned her father, saying she was no longer a Brothers and would no longer use his name. She survived a suicide attempt after struggling with survivor's guilt. On May 29th, the day Brothers received his death sentence, guards exposed a suspected escape attempt by Brothers. They said he wiggled out of his leg restraints and had paper clips in his hair that he could have used as keys. And until the day he is put to death, Brothers will be housed alongside the more than 600 others in California who face the death penalty. He will be one of the few with a master's degree to be on death row. Now the last execution in California was January 17, 2006, and for now, Governor Gavin Newsom has suspended the death penalty while he is in office. Recently, news has surfaced around Brothers' innocence, but this case seems closed to me, and it appears through excellent police work, they have their man. But we will keep an eye on this case, as we do all cases, but I really don't see this one overturned. So, so far, that's the case of Vincent Brothers. All right, guys, here we are um, in the speculation part of the show. You know, this whole show, I've pretty much made out Vincent Brothers to be guilty, and I believe that he is guilty um, for many of the reasons that I just that I just stated. 
But as I briefly mentioned at the end of the show, there is a good amount of people out on the internet, uh, in the interwebs, whatnot, and they believe that he's innocent. Um, I'm on a forum here at citydata.com, this, and this is a forum about um, Vincent Brothers. And this is a post, okay? This is just what got this activated. This I don't know who this person is. I'm not saying that they're right or in any, shape, any way, shape, or form, but they're the person that started this thread, and they are on the side of innocence. It says as follows, I have researched the details of this case, and from what I can see, Vincent Brothers is innocent of the first-degree murder charge that he is currently serving. I plan to grill the DA of Kern County as part of a college criminal justice class project. One way or another, I will do what I can to help Vincent Brothers become a free man. I have evaluated all the facts of the case, and nothing points to Vincent as the culprit behind the murders of his family members. Who agrees with me? Okay, that's how they left it. Well, one, two, three, uh, four people reply and they're all like, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, have at it, young crusader. Uh, you noob, you won't get an audience with the DA. Take your energy here first. And then they tag the Innocence Project of California and so on, so on. Then I scrolled on down and I'm like, there's got to be someone who agreed with this man or this person rather. Uh, screen name, what I say it was newbie 10. Not a great screen name, I guess, for coming onto a forum. But Someone actually did agree with him, uh, a user by the name of Doll and Mom. It says, uh, Newbie 10, I agree with you 100%. I have read the comments and followed this case and cannot understand what his personal life or cheating on his wife have to do with establishing beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed five acts of murder. I'm sorry, but some of these answers are full of hatred and are judgmental. And I, I do agree with that in a certain uh, in a certain aspect. Uh, they go on to say, stick to the facts. Prosecution, prosecution, because this trial received so much recognition, they needed to identify a suspect. There are unanswered questions. Regardless if he was cheating, um, we can't use that as a motive. Okay, so they have numbered bullets here of why they think he is innocent or cannot be proven guilty. Number one, they say, how can a man drive across the country and not stop for gas? Okay, first off, who said he didn't stop for gas? He obviously stopped for gas. The average car, even a Dodge Neon, might go, what, 300, 350 miles on a full tank? And then who's really pushing that? Most people are, are stopping for gas. It says, if he did not, if he did, not one eyewitness came forward identifying him at a gas station along the way. He would have had to maintain a speed of 70 miles per hour or a little less to go and return back to Ohio in the days in question. Okay, my argument to this is, who the hell looks at other people at a gas station unless they're being extremely suspicious? When I go pump gas, I mind my own fucking business unless something is going on. I'm not looking around, studying everyone's face, you know, uh, asking people their names, asking them what they're doing. No, I'm just getting gas. Secondly, maintaining a speed of 70 miles an hour over the course of thousands of miles um, not that difficult. I've driven across the country twice, and I would say once you get out into those open interstates and you're driving Interstate 40 West or East or whatever across the United States, not saying he took this route, but any interstate, um, there's wide open areas and you're doing minimum 80. Everyone is. 80 miles an hour is a, it, you can travel at 80 miles an hour across the U.S. for the most part. You know, might want to get you a police scanner or something like that, but you'll be all right. 
It's not crazy, especially if you're trying to commit murder and trying to convince people that you didn't. You would go to whatever extent you had to. So yes, maybe he packed food to take with him. He didn't stop for food. He only stopped for gas. And in a Dodge Neon, not a very big tank, doesn't take long to fill up. You get incredible gas mileage, especially on the interstate. This car was brand new. That means nothing to me. He could absolutely do this. Now, then it says, only one supposed eyewitness identified him in California, which I'm guessing they're saying is the neighbor who witnessed him at the back doors. And they're saying he was later identified as a drinker. Well, to this, I use your own argument against you and say, well, an adulterer, if you say an adulterer is not a murderer, then I say a drinker is not a liar. <laughs> and plus, this was in the middle of the day on Sunday. Come on now. Now, number f uh, the next one, it says forensics. Where are the prints? Are there any bloodstains in the rental car? Where are the murder weapons? He stabbed and shot his wife, supposedly. There has to be bloodstained clothes, okay? Well, he had plenty of time to get rid of this stuff, not to mention the car was deep cleaned by the rental service, which we covered in the episode as well. Uh, number six, Mother Harper, or not number six, I'm sorry, number four, Mother Harper, an activist and heavy involvement in criminal cases, right? So they're talking about um, Ernestine Harper, right? She was an activist and she was involved in a lot of criminal cases. And they're saying that possibly um, she was the target. Possibly she was the intended target. And so they just killed everyone because of witnesses. Well, if that's the case, why'd you kill everyone in the house who was asleep first and then kill Mrs. Harper last? Seems odd. It seems like you would go right for her right? Or maybe kill her and leave if everyone else is asleep, right? Then uh, the last question proposed by this skeptic is, where is Troy Brothers? Troy is Vincent's brother. It says, why did he not testify? What if his final test, what is his final testimony about their whereabouts? There are too many questions that raise doubts. It would have been a hung jury for me, they said, but you but you had so many people who formulate opinions because the man had women and was all too well known in the community. So people were shocked and hurt. I get it. But one, his role as a husband is not your business. He's being tried for murder, not adultery. Prove to me he is a murderer beyond a reasonable doubt. And then they go on to say, newbie 10, go for it, right? Um, and that is the hard part. Proving without a reasonable doubt is very, very difficult. But the circumstantial evidence in this case is astounding. Absolutely astounding. The mileage just adds up too well. 5,400 miles, 20, from Ohio to California, it's 2,200. There's 2,200 there and back to Ohio, that's 4,400. Then you add the 1,000 to North Carolina and boom, there you go. It's not even that complicated. It's, it's pretty crazy how uh, people are not getting this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, and, and plus, you know, when he was suspected, he completely stonewalled the police, ignored them, and evaded them in every way, shape, or form. If you wanted to help solve your family's murder, I mean, I understand. You're with other women. You're seeing other women. You don't love your ex-wife anymore. Okay, fine. But you had three biological children in this house, one of which was only six weeks old. And you don't want to help find that murderer? That right there, to me, speaks for itself.
speaks for itself, but that's just me. All right, guys, that's my opinion. That's my two cents. I'm going to leave it at that. But we still got one more person to hear from, as you all know. So let's check in with Lauren this week on this week's Lauren Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like, breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like, breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like, breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here. Here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. Vincent Brothers, a convicted family annihilator, a man who was very well educated, holding a master's degree in education, but ultimately was convicted of killing five of his family members, three of his children, his wife and his wife's mother, and driving 2,000 miles from Ohio to Bakersfield, California to do so. Making this trip to Ohio from where he lived in Bakersfield, uh, allegedly as an alibi, according to police. And they were able to get a conviction based off of a lot of circumstantial evidence, a lot of catching him in a lot of lies, also building a case around his character. He had multiple marriages in the past, <clears throat> as well as, um, can, you know, he had been spent time in court for abuse of prior people. He'd also uh, allegedly hit a coworker, a female coworker at work, and those charges had been dropped. Um, but police theorized that he drove 2000 miles with a rental car after flying to Ohio from California and they were able to connect the dots thanks to insects, different types of insects. Uh, basically they only could have come from this different States, uh, that he drove through. This would have been a hell of a drive though. The people that uh, claim that he might be innocent say that it would take him traveling on average 70 miles an hour, uh, for basically without any stops to be able to pull this off in the amount of time that he did. So, <clears throat> which it's possible. We've seen motivated killers. I forget what case it was. There was a woman who drove across the country without stopping using basically diapers and whatnot to go and kill someone. I heard about that case. I mean, if you're motivated, you're motivated and this was his alibi. Um, and it's, he couldn't explain all the different insects in the vehicle and also the odometer readings on this rental car. Um, and then he tried to say that he had been, you know, at this said store and purchased items. And it turned out that his brother was on footage purchasing those items. And so he got caught in multiple lies. He had motive there. You know, this was uh, a wife that he had already, uh, had been divorced with and then also got back together with and this family was a financial burden to him um and so yeah i, I believe that he did it i don't i think that there's just too many coincidences here he goes on this this little vacation to see his brother out of nowhere and all of a sudden his whole family's murdered and then he has this rental car with all this mileage and all these bugs and uh and then when you think about his character and his past it just uh, all of it makes too much sense that being said it's a little surprising they got a death penalty conviction with almost no physical evidence. It, basically, everything being circumstantial. That's pretty surprising to me. But I don't really care because, like I said, I, I, I'm 99% sure he did this. Um, so it was clearly a staged burglary. And um, like I said, he had motive and he was caught in a web of lies uh, throughout this. So 
Luckily for him, he sits in San Quentin with guys like Randy Kraft who will never be killed. They'll just stay on death row forever until they die of natural causes, and that'll be his fate. They'll never kill him, um, and he'll get special treatment being in death row. Um, So, yeah, that's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll see you next week. All right, Lauren, thank you very much for that synopsis. As always, it sounds like you get it. You get it. Right. And and like like he said, it is crazy with no concrete physical evidence that we believe this man is guilty, but I don't know. It's it's kinda this reminds me a lot of the Purvis Payne case. If you guys haven't listened to that, one of the most controversial cases that we've done. Um, we initially thought that Purvis might have been innocent, but upon further investigation, who else could have done it, right? And I feel the same way about this case. I just don't think anyone I don't think Ernestine was the main target i believe her daughter was and her husband had all the motive in the world to kill her especially if he wanted to start a new life with someone else he had a history of uh of domestic abuse he had prior charges um so it it just all the circumstantial evidence is there like lauren said i can't believe he got the death penalty i think at most um, I would, I would have thought he would have got life, but man, but given the death penalty in California is life, right? So it is what it is. But, uh, if you guys have any opinions on this case, feel free to email me, uh, at sandupodcast at gmail.com S A N D U podcast at gmail.com. Um, same way if you have any case suggestions or things you'd like to hear us cover on the show. And if you like the show and you want to support the show, a great way to do that is patreon.com slash truecrimeguys. Um, for just five bucks a month, you can get access to everything that we make on True Crime Guys on the True Crime Guys platform. Um, it, that, and that includes True Crime Guys exclusive Patreon episodes. That includes Just the Banter with me and Lauren every single Friday where we engage with listeners. And then also here on the Strange and Unexplained platform, we have Strange Shorts uh, every single Monday with me and Andy, which you guys get to hear every fourth episode of on the free platform. You get that show every single Monday on Patreon uh, on the $5 tier, as well as Sandu Stories. One of my favorite things that we do here on TCG Network, Sandu Stories, which is a over, <laughs> I say overly produced so many times, I don't mean overly produced, but cinematically produced podcast with sound effects, voice actors, um, uh, music and ambience and you know you get the you you get the idea. It's like listening to a really well produced audiobook or a movie uh, in your ears, right? So if that sounds like your t- your kind of thing, if you like script podcasts like that, please consider checking out Sandu Stories. We just released chapter nineteen, so there's nineteen different Sandu Stories. They are unrelated chapters. We just call them chapters because we think it's cool because it's Sandu Stories. Um, in the future, we do plan on doing uh, more episodic episodes where there will be, you know, three to four episodes for a story. But for right now, each episode is a one-off. You don't have to listen to them to them in order. You can listen to them however you want, and you can see how that show has progressed. Again, that's patreon.com slash guys. There's a link right below the description of this episode to every single thing that we make. All right. Um, speaking of Patreon. I do a show on there called Higher Thoughts. I've been doing Higher Thoughts for years. Um, I believe since 
2018. I'm, I can't really remember. Um, but season one and season two, which is still in progress, is available on the patreon.com slash true crime guys as well. Um, there's 35 episodes in season one, and we are currently on episode 11 on season two. And that is just what it sounds like. It's higher thoughts. Um, it, it is a very spontaneous show. Each episode is different. I've had guests on the show. Lauren's been on a show, Esther Ludlow from Once Upon a Crime, who also covered this case, by the way. I want to give her a big shout out. Esther Ludlow covered this case. Um, I did use it as part of a study source. I did, or I used part of a podcast as a study source. Put it to you that way. Um, and as always, it's an amazingly amazingly covered episode so if you haven't heard enough on this case please check out once upon a crime um esther ludlow's and i think she called it let me see what number episode it is number 182 it's called bad teacher vincent brothers so if you guys want a another great source on this case please check out once upon a crime episode 182 bad teacher all right Guys, that's pretty much it. Again, like I say, I appreciate the support. I appreciate you listening, leaving reviews, rating, telling your friends, sharing on social media, at SNU Podcast on social media, at True Crime Guys as well. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it, guys. So next week, I'll be back with another strange and unexplained case. All right? So until then, you just keep being strange. All right? Just don't be a stranger. See ya. check out all the other programs on the TCG network. Every Wednesday, a new episode of True Crime Guys proper, Strange and Unexplained on Mondays, and Full House Fantasy Football on Fridays to start your weekend. If those aren't enough, head on over to our Patreon account, where you can have access to hundreds of hours of content, including older episodes and other Patreon exclusives like Strange Shorts, Sandu Stories, Higher Thoughts, and the 5-Minute Murder Show. But until next time, guys, keep creeping. How How do you shut this thing off? Over? Oh, my God.